the first post-exilic prophet is Obadiah. Obadiah ministered sometime after 578 B.C. We don't know exactly. There's no date. Joel and Obadiah are unique in the fact that they don't actually give an official date, like in the year of this king or in the year of this person or the year after the famine or whatever. So we don't have a precise date. But based on contextual ideas and concepts and themes that he talks about, we know that sometime after 578, this is, like I said, between the first and second returns of the exile. Some people believe that this is a pre-exilic prophet, merely based on the idea that it's organized with the pre-exilic prophets in the table of contents of our Bible. But the other thing to remember, too, is that our Bible is not even the same type of contents order as the Jewish Bible. We have a completely different order of things. The other reason, there are no chapters in Obadiah. It's one chapter. Some people look at verses 10 through 14 of Obadiah, and they think that this fits the Edomite rebellion against Judah that's described in 2 Kings chapter 8 and 2 Chronicles chapter 21. Obadiah is mostly addressing the Edomites, who were the descendants of Esau. And so they look at that and they're like, well, this sounds like the rebellion that the Edomites had against Judah when Judah was ruling over the Edomites and the Edomites began to throw off the yoke of Judah. However, these accounts make no reference to the Edomites looting the royal palace of Judah along with the Philistines and the Arabian tribes. So there's a lot here that doesn't match. Yes, there's a similarity. The Edomites rebelled, but that happened a lot. But there's a lot of differences here that don't fit. Likewise, there is no mention of the coming of the Assyrians or of the exile. Now, that is a strong one. I think with both Obadiah and Joel, they're the most solid, in my opinion, silver bullet arguments of why Obadiah and Joel are post-exilic prophets is they never, ever, ever mention the coming Assyrians or the Babylonians. And they never mention the coming exile. And all the pre-exilic prophets mention the coming exile. And the vast majority of them mention the coming of the Assyrians or the Babylonians. Or if they don't mention them by name, they talk about a great army from the north that will come. This doesn't seem to fit. Why would they completely leave out the greatest judgment that has ever happened in the history of Israel if they're talking about the coming of the greatest judgment that has ever happened in the history of Israel, and they're preceding that. That argument, I think, is very strong for why Obadiah and Joel do not fit as a pre-exilic prophet. The main idea of the book of Obadiah is announcing the judgment on Edom and reminding Israel the promises of Yahweh. So Edom mistreated Israel and Judah during their being taken into exile. And so God is coming and saying, even though I allowed my people to be taken into exile, we've seen this theme already, I still do not like the way that you did it. Okay, Assyrians, I allowed you to punish my people, but the way you went about it was horribly evil, you will be punished. Babylonians, I allowed you to do this, but the way that you went about it was horribly evil, and I will punish you. And I, I allowed my people to go into exile, but Edom, the way that you took advantage of them and mistreated them as this was happening, was horribly evil, and I will deal with you. God actually has a harsher judgment for Edom 
than he did for the Assyrians and Babylonians because the Edomites are the descendants of Esau, who is the brother of Jacob, who is the father of the Israelites. So the fact that they are both a part of the Abrahamic covenant and one member of the Abrahamic covenant mistreated another member of the Abrahamic covenant puts them under greater judgment. And we know this. For those who are in Christ and those who know more about the revelation of God, when they abuse that or reject it or disobey it, they're held to a much higher standard. Obadiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 14 is the first division that we see here. This book is divided into two divisions, and the first 14 verses is the first division. The vision that Obadiah saw, Yahweh God says this concerning Edom. We have heard a report from Yahweh, an envoy was sent among the nations, saying, Arise, let us make war against Edom. And Yahweh says, Look, I will make you a weak nation. You will be greatly despised. Your presumptuous heart has deceived you. You who reside in the safety of the rocky cliffs, whose home is in high mountains, you think to yourself, No one can bring me down to the ground. Even if you were to soar high like an eagle, even if you were to make your nest among the stars, I can bring you down even from there, says Yahweh. The first thing that Yahweh does is he declares a message of war against Edom. The plural we here most likely refers to Obadiah and the exiles who received the message. So Yahweh has declared, I'm going to punish you, Edom, and I'm going to bring war against you. So Obadiah and the returning exiles say, we have heard the message. We have heard the message of God. So God has spoke this message to Obadiah, who spoke it to the people, and the people have now heard this, and they're now proclaiming to Edom, war is coming to you for what you did to us. So that's the report from Yahweh. And Yahweh says, though you are a strong nation, Edom was a very strong nation, they were able to throw the yoke of Judah off their shoulders when Judah was pretty strong. He says, I will make you weak. I will make you utterly weak. Now, Yahweh had promised through Abraham to make Edom a great nation in the Abrahamic covenant. And he had fulfilled that for a long time. But just like he fulfilled that with Israel and they disobeyed him and under the covenant of the, the Mosaic covenant, he said, if you disobey me, then I will oppress you and I will allow other nations to take you. He's saying the same thing to Edom, basically. So they don't have the Mosaic Covenant necessarily. They do have the Abrahamic Covenant. And the Abrahamic Covenant is still dependent upon them not grossly violating the ethical or the morality or the Ten Commandments of God. So he says, you're presumptuous in your heart. Edom lived in these rocky cliffs. Okay? They, they didn't actually live on the ground and that kind of stuff. They were more, they lived in cliffs and the caves and that kind of stuff. And because of that, they were pretty protected. It was very hard for people to attack them. Because people attack them, they have to go single file on these switchback trails up into the cliffs and go through these little nooks and crannies. And that makes it very easy to attack them and defend yourself as people navigate that. So they became very arrogant in their confidence that nobody can attack me. We can just reside into our mountains and be safe. And Yahweh says, and they, so he compares them to an eagle sitting up on top of a cliff. And he says, though you think you are safe and you can fly away whenever you want, you are not safe. Because I, Yahweh, can bring your nest down. I am much higher than you. I am much more sovereign. And though you make your home in the nest of eagles and the stars of the sky high up, I will bring you down even from there, says Yahweh. 
Verse 5, If thieves came to rob you during the night, they would steal only as much as they wanted. If grape pickers came to harvest your vineyards, they would leave some behind for the poor. But you will be totally destroyed. How the people of Esau will be thoroughly plundered. Their hidden valuables will be ransacked. All your allies will force you from their homeland. Your treaty partners will deceive you and overpower you. Your trusted friends will set an ambush for you that will take you by surprise. At that time, Yahweh says, I will destroy the wise sages of Edom, the advisors from Esau's mountain. Your warriors will be shattered, O Teman, so that everyone will be destroyed from Esau's mountain. So God says, look, when thieves break into your house, they only take what they need or can carry. When people pick your grapes wrongfully and illegally, they only take what they can eat. But when I bring raiders to destroy you, they are going to destroy and take everything. You will be stripped bare. And they will leave nothing behind. Everything that is valuable, even the hidden stuff, will be taken away. Your allies will betray you and deceive you and stab you in the back. Your trusted friends will ambush you. Your wise sages will be brought low. And the idea is that you, this will be done to you as you've done to others. Esau... You were a friend. You were supposed to be a friend to Jacob because you're their brother, and yet you turn on them and ambush them. So your friends and your allies will do the same thing to you. Verse 10. Because you violently slaughtered your relatives, the people of Jacob, shame will cover you, and you will be destroyed forever. You stood aloof while strangers took his army captive, and foreigners advanced to his gates. And when they cast idols over Jerusalem, you behaved as though you were in league with them. You should not have gloated when your relatives suffered calamity. And you should not have rejoiced over the people of Judah when they were destroyed. And you should have not boasted when they suffered adversity. You mocked and you took joy in the destruction of Judah. It was bad enough that you harmed them, but you took pleasure in that. Verse 13, you should have not entered the city of my people when they experienced distress. You should have not joined in gloating over their misfortunes when they suffered distress. You should have looted their wealth when they endured distress. You should not have stood at the fork in the road to the slaughter, those trying to escape. You should not have captured the refugees when they suffered adversity. That fork in the road, the idea is they had no escape. You can go this way or this way, but when you're standing in the middle of the fork, there is no escape from you. They're dead either way. And you should have never done that to them. So that's the first section. And the first section is basically about God announcing destruction on Edom. And the second division, which is the final verses of this book, Obadiah sets the destruction of Edom against the backdrop of the future day of Yahweh. And he either Obadiah or Yahweh, we don't know exactly who's the primary speaker here, then promises Israel that they would take their land back. Sorry, this is what God says. For all the day of Yahweh is approaching. So, sorry, there's no all there. For the day of Yahweh is approaching for all the nations, just as you have done, so it will be done to you. You will get exactly what your deeds deserve. Now remember the day of Yahweh, or the day of Lord, is this day of judgment. The first time that we ever see the day of Yahweh is back in Exodus. And the day of Yahweh is a double-edged sword. In one sense, one edge of the sword completely punish 
and destroyed Egypt for their sins and the way that they had mistreated the people of God and the way that they had um, rejected Yahweh and worshipped idols. And the other sense, on the other end of the sword, it delivered Israel and rescued them and brought them into the promises of God and the blessings of God and the dwelling of God. And this is the idea of a double-edged sword. One sword is the destruction of evil and um, sin, and the other sword is a deliverance for righteous. And so this is the day of Yahweh. So this moment of a decisive, drastic, devastating judgment against the people, the enemies of the people of God, and the deliverance of the people of God, became this typology of any other day that Yahweh would do that. So the day that Yahweh came in and delivered the Canaanites into the hands of Joshua was the day of Yahweh. It was a decisive moment of judgment and deliverance and blessing. And the day that he brought the Babylonians and the Assyrians was the day of Yahweh. And so what God sets up is that these things are the days that he decisively acts. And they're not a day singular. It's a day like a time period, like the day that Britain ruled the seas. It's a metaphor of a time period. It could be a day or it could be a period of days that God decides to act. This then gets established by the prophets. And not only do they speak of other future days of the Yahweh that would come where he will act decisively, but it also foreshadows and looks forward to an ultimate day of Yahweh where Christ will literally come to the earth and literally wipe out all evil, destroying and judging all enemies, and then delivering his people into the new Jerusalem that will fill all the earth with no sin and no evil ever again. And so it's a hint that if God can do this here, he can do it more cosmically or more globally in the future to come. He is speaking about a more localized day of the Yahweh where Eden will be destroyed. But this will then slowly evolve into a more global day of Yahweh where Eden will not only get a more immediate historical day of Yahweh, but one day they will be wrapped up in the day of Yahweh judgment that will come on all the nations in a final blow kind of a sense. He's saying you will get exactly what you've done. You've done to them, it will be done to you. You will reap what you sow. For just as you've drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and they will gulp down. They will be as though they had never been. But on Mount Zion, there will be a remnant of those who escape. And it will be a holy place once again. And the descendants of Jacob will conquer those who have conquered them. And the descendants of Jacob will be a fire. And the descendants of Joseph a flame. And the descendants of Esau will be like stubble. And they will burn them up and devour them. And there will not be a single survivor of the descendants of Esau. Indeed, Yahweh has spoken it. And the people of the Negev, which is the southern region of Israel, will take possession of Esau's mountain. And the people of Sherephoth, which is higher up in Israel, will take possession of the land of the Philistines. And they will also take possession of the territory of Ephraim, which is in the middle of Israel, or the territory of Samaria, which is also in the middle. And the people of Benjamin will take possession of Gilead, which is on the eastern side of the Jordan River. The exiles of the fortresses of the people of Israel will take possession of what belongs to the people of Canaan as far as Zarephath, which is way up in the north, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shepherd, will take possession of the towns of the Negev. 
Those who have been delivered will go on Mount Zion in order to rule over Esau's mountain. Then Yahweh will reign as king. So God basically says, Israel was punished and devastated and reduced and taken into exile. But I will restore them. And I will make them a great nation over the world one day. You, Esau, you will be completely destroyed with no restoration. Because of what you've done, you will be completely destroyed. And there will be no restoration for you. In contrast, the Israel that you mocked and took advantage of and thought had been weakened to the point of no return will be established. And they will take your homes and your territories, and not just yours, but the territories of the Philistines and the Phoenicians in the north as well, who did the same thing to them as you did. But what makes your actions so bad is, once again, you did it to your brother. And the Philistines and the Phoenicians were not brothers to Israel. What God basically promises here is that he will punish them for what they have done. Historically speaking, we have never seen Edom experience this judgment on this scale. There's nothing in historical records of this massive, total wiping out of the Edomites that God talks about here. Probably the reason is this is more poetic. Remember, a lot of God's destruction language is overly exaggerated, sometimes very profane and very horrific. Because what he's trying to paint is not just the literal, this will happen, like watching the History Channel documentary on Napoleon or Hitler's conquest of things, but more of an emotional metaphor of this is what it will feel like. This is what it will be in the gut and in the mind and the emotions of when this thing happens. And so God often exaggerates or uses hyperbole for a metaphorical reason to give you a punch to the emotions of what's happening. And we all know that a, a localized, just specific people being judged versus a total destruction and annihilation of people can emotionally feel the same way. Can emotionally, when it's happening to you, it doesn't really matter if all people are being destroyed like this or just a small group of people are destroyed. If you're in the middle of it, it's gonna feel the same emotionally. And so that's the language. So we should probably see this language. And we see this all throughout the prophets. And that's important too, because sometimes you read this language and you're like, wow, God really seems to be taking joy in this horrific, devastating language that he's going to bring on the people. And that's not the point either. The point is to evoke emotions and paint pictures of what will happen, not the idea that God's really taking joy in how descriptive and poetic he can be in describing horrific things to you. And so it seems to be most likely the idea here. This is encouraging to us. Now, in some sense, you're like, okay, I don't know any Edomites. <laughs> I'm not an Israelite. I didn't go through this. And this happened a long time ago. But remember, God's promises to not only bless us and that he fulfills that, is not only an encouragement and something that we can hold on to that God will one day take care of us and deliver us and bless us, but his promises to judge horrible evils like this and that the fact that he fulfills them in the past 
also is something to hold on to and anticipate one day that evil will be destroyed. And especially right now in the culture that we're living in, there's so many horrible things that are happening around the world right now. Governments that are out of control, abusing their people and subjugating them and oppressing them in all kinds of way. And even the things that are happening right now in America where we're mass corruption and fraud is being exposed left and right in our country right now. And you're like, well, I kind of knew a little bit this was happening, but wow, the veil has been really pulled aside. And there's a real sense of like, what's going to happen if, if our country really truly has turned out to be this fraudulent, this untrustworthy? And it seems like people will not be held accountable. And what God is saying is they will. They will. Whether locally here on minor scales of fraud and corruption and government, which does affect people's lives in drastic ways, or in the big cases of genocide and oppression and slavery that we see in other places of the world, God will deal with them. And, and we can look through history where we, we can see where that's happened. And those things give us confidence that one day that will happen. And what God is saying is we're not to emotionally take joy in the fact that people of God, or not people of God, but um, humans that God loves and has created are suffering and getting punished. But we can take joy and satisfaction that there is justice for evil. And remember, that's the difficulty where I can have compassion on you for what you're going through, but I can still say it's totally just the consequences you're facing. And I can take satisfaction in that as well. And this is what God is saying. And this is why Isaiah says, one day the righteous will bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked. And you're like, wow, how graphic. But the idea is that one day there will be justice. And we can enjoy that justice. And that language is highly metaphorical of the universality and the global nature of the justice, not in the horror movie pleasure of that justice. And that's hard for us. Um, as Americans, we're not used to poetic language. Now, some of you might be very gifted in poetry and really enjoy and get it. But as a whole, the Western world has geared us more towards logic and reason and and literal concreteism. And so the idea of understanding poetry, like how can God say that and get it's true, is not what we're used to. It's not what we're used to. We don't know how to take that. And we take it so literally. So that is the book of Obadiah. 